0: and suggest future topics and guests.
1: Today we are joined by David Knapp, co-founder of Ornivera and director at Togram. David has over 30 years of management, sales, and operations success at startups and MNCs throughout the Asia-Pacific region. David has held senior positions in the IT, telecommunications, and supply chain services sectors. Some of David's roles have included Wind River Systems, Motorola, Javi Global Solutions, Savile Systems, Tandem Computers, and EDS, Electronic Data Systems. David has significant experience selling and delivering complex products and solutions, creating high-level alliances with customers, government officials, thought leaders, market movers and business partners. He has lived and worked in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Melbourne, Sydney, Hanoi, and Singapore. He currently resides in Singapore with his wife and two teenage daughters. He has a degree in economics from the University of Chicago. David, welcome to Harris Bricken's Global Law and Business. Thank you, good to be here. David, welcome to the show. Just
0: before we went live, we were talking about Singapore and Hong Kong. Both of us have have spent quality time in Asia although you've been there for for longer than than I was so please tell us more about your career in Asia what took you there what did you go looking for what did you find and of course where were you
2: (laughs) well that could take up most of the half an hour so I'll try to keep it (laughs) short right out of college I I had a job in uh, in Chicago with a theater group My first job was to be a road manager there, and we traveled to the Eastern Bloc, and that was in the days of uh, the Cold War was still going on. And I managed to get across the Berlin Wall and travel through East Germany into Poland and spend some time there. And I was dealing with a lot of people who didn't speak English, and uh, I was trying to get a job done to construct a set on a stage for a theater group that was performing, And, and it was about six to eight weeks of traveling um, through Europe. And I I realized then that I I really wanted to work internationally. So I went back to the United States and continued working in the regular job until I got a chance to to go overseas. My sister was living in Japan at the time. I was working in Los Angeles and not very happy in a job I had there. And she just sort of tongue in cheek said, why don't you come live with me in Tokyo? So I literally quit my job the next day, had a big yard sale, got rid of everything, packed a duffel bag and bought a one way ticket to Tokyo. And that was uh, early 1985. And I haven't been back since. So in Japan, the only thing I swore was, was that I would never teach English. Right. <laughs> so I got my first job at a marketing company um, that did business with western companies that were trying to establish in Japan and japanese companies that were trying to establish business overseas and i did that for a few years one of the customers that i worked with was eds electronic data systems they had just uh, set up their offices in in tokyo and i did some consulting work for them and they offered me a job and that was the beginning of my tech career back in those days eds had a intensive training program where they taught people how to program computers for companies in 10 weeks. And I went through this program in Dallas and they subsequently sent me to Melbourne to work on a computer project for Holden's Motor Company. Long story short, I spent about 18 months in Australia. The next phase of my life was to move up to Hong Kong, where I spent the next eight years working for EDS um, and uh, eventually joined Tandem Computers as their marketing manager. Uh, I went from programming to sales sort of naturally. I think people realized that I was a better customer guy than I was a programmer. So I I moved into the marketing and sales organizations uh, at EDS, and then Tandem hired me as their marketing manager. Tandem then, eight years later, moved me to Singapore. From Tandem, uh, I joined a billing and customer care company. They sold a software solution to Cellular uh, providers and uh, I helped them start up their business in Asia worked for them for a couple of years then Motorola hired me at Motorola I experienced a lot of interesting things that was uh, the beginning of the cellular era and we were really making a difference in people's lives <laughs> because we were rolling out cellular infrastructure across Southeast Asia and you know in addition to spending my first few years marketing you know, 3g solutions then moving to sydney for a couple of years to work on a project down there my best i think and favorite job at motorola was uh, i ran motorola vietnam for for three years and that was in the area when you know our engineers would go to a, a village put in install a base station and the village throw them a party in the evening because they were connecting them to the outside world. So you really got the feeling that you were making a difference in people's lives, in regular people's lives. So I did that until 2008 when I moved back to Singapore and that's uh, where I've been. I left Motorola. I worked for a brief time at a company called Javi Global Solutions, which is a supply chain services company. Essentially did all the packaging and a lot of supply chain services for McDonald's. Um, and after that, I joined Wind River for a few years um, as their head of services. Uh, Wind River is an interesting company. It does embedded software, um, which is essentially the firmware or the, the software that makes the printed circuit boards run so that you can program applications on top of, on, on top of that. Uh, I left Wind River in 2015 and I just decided to do my own thing. Uh, after that. And with, uh, I founded a company called Togram. It does business development services for companies that are trying to uh, get into the Southeast Asian market. And basically, I sell stuff for other people. Um, And some of my customers have included uh, a company that made pallets out of waste plastic, a company that does holograms um, that it's called art media and they have a hologram solution. They basically put people live on a stage um, remotely and effectively. It's a pretty cool company. And recently I've uh, started doing a little bit of work for a building management uh, software company that uh, effectively helps people take control of the electronics and air conditioning in their buildings and, and saving energy. So that's where I am now, <laughs> and I've also, I guess, the reason we're we're talking here is I, I founded a company called Ornavera uh, with a few other guys. Um, I was doing some work for another company that was selling sensing devices for agriculture, and their sensing devices were were very basic, and they provided data on a screen. Uh, that company subsequently downsized significantly. Uh, and one of the guys that I was working with in the United States, he and I said, hey, you know, I, I think we should, we should give this another shot because what we saw in some of the customers that were interested in this product was very promising, and we thought we could do a better job of it. And so we founded the company, and that's what we're here to talk about today, I guess.
1: We have to mention, of course, David, that uh, you and I are fellow wisconsinites right you you hail from you hail from wausau i hail from, from from platteville so that's a that's a pretty fun thing for midwest guys to connect again over uh, discussions about asia
2: yeah i have many small world stories uh i actually met another wisconsin guy at a south african friend's home and it turned out this guy <laughs> was best friends with my next door neighbor when i was growing up there's a lot of good wisconsin <laughs> stories yeah it is great so let's
1: talk for a minute about embedded software. I have a couple of brothers-in-law who are in, in the embedded software arena. So I know a little bit about it more, maybe more than the average person, but love to hear you explain it more. Since you're a marketing guy, you should be able to explain it uh, in terms that we can all understand. Uh, so a little pressure on you there. And then uh, if you can talk about how you know embedded software, how that fits into the world of electronics and, and of course, now ultimately agriculture for you.
2: Well, embedded software is a remarkably simple thing. I mean, you open up pretty much any electronic device, you see a green board, printed circuit board with a lot of components on it, and embedded software essentially makes all those components talk to each other so that, that they so that they can perform a higher level function. You know, take your iPhone or your smartphone for instance, you know, it's got a printed circuit board on it, it's got chips, it's got lots of components. Many of those components have some sort of central processing unit, and there's more than one. And the embedded software basically sits on this, the board, in the different components of the board, and enables them to talk to each other. It's it's really as simple as that. And the, the code that is in those is kind of old. In, in a lot of cases, it's uh, very efficient machine-level code that makes it communicate efficiently on the board. And essentially then it all bubbles up into the central processing unit's operating system. And then that operating system is accessed by things like Windows and everything else. So are we talking about DOS? Are we talking about deeper in the system than DOS? We're talking about deeper in the system than DOS. The DOS is the cent that that sits on the the main central processing unit of your computing device, but the components themselves, say for example, you know, the clock. The clock that sits in the system, you know, somebody has to tell the clock when to start and stop and check the clock. And that's all done in the embedded software on the board itself. So it's basically the operating system that tells the board or the device how to operate. You tell the device what you want it to do through DOS or the operating system of your computer. And how much has technology uh, of the type that Ornavera is
1: working on or even other types of technology, how much, how much have you seen technology permeate into Agriculture, right? I, I think of agriculture, you know, from my time in Wisconsin, as as uh, you know, combines and planters, uh, you know, harvesting machines. Right? I don't, I don't necessarily think of uh, of those as synonymous with high tech. Well, it's
2: interesting. I, I again, I'm I'm not a huge expert on agriculture. Strangely enough, what I'm, what we're trying to do at Ornavera is try to apply a very specific type of technology and help farmers grow better. Farmers have obviously benefited from technology in a lot of different ways you look at your average combine or tractor a lot of them now have gps in them that will tell you exactly how and when you plowed your fields or planted your fields they'll keep track of a lot of that data for you Um, a lot of the planting devices have sensors in them when you're planting your seeds for whatever crop you're growing it will put the seeds at the exact depth that you specify um, it will tell you if your ground is properly aerated. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of technology that farmers have available to them. Most of it, I think, however, is sort of standalone. So, um, you know, they, they might have a very smart tractor or they might have a, a smart irrigation system, but most of those things don't necessarily interact with each other.
0: Well, now that you've issued that disclaimer about agriculture, I'm going to ask you more about agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, because you still know a lot more than I do, um, could you tell us about some of the more significant developments that you are you are seeing uh, when it comes to agriculture, specifically in Asia? Um, are there uh, specific developments happening with regards to certain crops? Uh, things like corn, wheat, soybeans. Um, At the same time, what are perhaps some of the countries that are at the leading edge of of agriculture?
2: That's a big question, uh, because there's a lot of countries in Asia. Uh, I'll give you some anecdotal examples. Here in Singapore, um, obviously, there's not a lot of arable land for people to grow. Um, And what they're trying to do is they've they've got an initiative here that they want to get to 20 or 30 percent homegrown vegetables by um, 2030. And they're doing that both indoors and outdoors, but primarily indoors. So there's a big push for indoor growers here in Singapore. You're seeing some of the same types of behavior in countries like Malaysia, Korea and Japan have been doing it for years. Japanese and the Koreans are both huge indoor growers, particularly strawberries, berries, and things like that. At the same time, you've also got countries like China, Thailand that are moving into the hemp growing business. Uh, I think you've had somebody on the on your podcast, uh, Glenn Davies, who's, who's quite active in that area. Um, and that is really, I, I would say, probably the biggest boom market in Asia right now where people are starting to direct their efforts to to growing hemp uh, and cannabite. So one of the things that I've discovered is, as we founded Ornavera, I mean, we founded it based on the principle that the growers need to know more about what they're doing on their plot of land. Um, there's a lot of gut feel that, that goes into growing. There's a lot of technology that is applicable in growing. What we've learned here, not just in Asia, but around the world is that, you know, farmers that have been growing for a really long time can't always explain why one particular crop grows better or worse than another. And what we wanted to do is try to give them the ability to use data to make decisions. And one thing that I've discovered is that people really don't know a lot about and I, I know this doesn't sound right, but people really don't know a lot about what's going on really at ground level um, in, in their growing. And that's true here in Asia. And I think people are starting to be more interested in that because of climate change and the, the growing need for food. So that's, that's fascinating to think about,
1: uh, growers uh, obviously focusing on the health of the plant as they can see it above ground, but not having... Data and, and and even to me as an outsider thinking, what kind of data is available to the farmers using technology? I mean, are we talking soil content? Are we talking um, moisture content? Are we talking about how often they should be watered
2: and, and kind of automating that? Or how, how deep are we going in the data? Okay, good. Now, this is something I can really sink my teeth into. Because what, what we do at Ornabera is, again, we, we saw that collecting data... Is is the is the biggest challenge. There's you know millions and millions and millions of acres of farmland in the world. There's a lot of research that goes on in universities in very small areas. And as we were starting to research what we did at Ornaviera, you know, I was talking to a pepper grower in Vietnam, and this pepper grower um, was building or is building the first large scale pepper plantation ever all the black pepper that you eat is grown by smallhold farmers and you know people with one or two acres of land just growing pepper it's aggregated processed and by companies like my customer these people decided let's try growing pepper on a large scale and they wanted to see how this works we make a device or devices that have uh, a number of different sensors on them. They sense how much sun is shining and for how long and what type of sun is shining, you know, whether it's in the what's called uh, photosynthetically active uh, radiation spectrum of the, of the light spectrum. That's basically light that is good for growing plants. We make a soil sensor that detects how much water is in the soil at the temperature of the soil it also detects the electroconductivity of the soil and from that mathematically you can extract more information essentially you can de- you can determine what the mineral content of the water in the soil is so that that's a really important thing for p- people because there's all kinds of fairly expensive devices out there that can do that but it's time consuming and you only get a result when you actually make the test, which could be once a week, once a month, once a year, our soil sensors are in the ground twenty-four hours a day, taking these readings, so they can detect, you know, day-to-day variations in your in the mineral content of the soil and and uh, the water content of the soil. We also um, make a device called a dendrometer that detects very minute variations in the stem of a plant and what that basically does is it allows you to see the heartbeat of the plant if you remember your high school biology uh, and transpiration when the sun comes out the plant opens up and expirates or transpires oxygen and water into the atmosphere and if you can detect the plant stem expansion and contraction on a daily basis you can make sure that your plant's heart is beating. If you have a long, prolonged period of cloudy days and your plant isn't growing, the the stem will weaken and shrink and people need to be notified of that. And that's essentially what we do. So why is this valuable to growers? (laughs) It's valuable because they've never really had that type of information on a day-to-day basis. A grower will typically take a a soil reading once a week to make sure that what they think is happening is actually happening. We're giving them that information on a day-to-day basis so that they can be more comfortable with what's going on in in their growing environment. Furthermore, they can then start learning by looking back at the data after a year's growth. If you ask a grower, you know, why did you have such a great crop this year? Well, we had a lot of sun. Well, how much sun did you have this year? And and how do you know on a year-to-year basis if you're getting that amount of sun? You have to keep track. And up till now, people generally haven't been able to do that, to be able to see really on a granular level what's going on um, in the very basic elements that help a plant grow. Sunshine, water, mineral content, temperature, and humidity. All those things are very important. To plants, and everybody sort of has a rough idea of what makes a plant grow. What we're giving them now is a very specific insight into what's happening. So it sounds like your technology
1: you're working on would be helpful to to those one to two acre farmers as much as it would be to
2: bigger scale farmers. Is that right? That's the whole idea, really. What we want to do is make technology accessible to every grower. Um, And of course, we, we can't start at that level because you know selling to smallhold farmers is a lot harder <laughs> than selling to big growers and and we're starting with big growers but the idea and and the the, the customers that we're working with kind of get this which is first we need to collect we need to s- establish the process of collecting the data and gaining the insights from it and you know a lot of the software and IOT systems around the market, they have really sophisticated graphs and, and uh, buttons on their software. We, we, we're trying to keep it as simple as possible because we, we feel that the, you know, the small hole farmer is not, is not gonna be a spreadsheet jockey and they're not gonna understand how to create graphs in Excel. So we wanna do the basics of that work for them and help them understand how they can start tracking the details of what's going on in their growing environment um, but yes to answer your question we really we want to make this a tool that any any grower can use and I remember
1: when we talked a few weeks ago you had mentioned the software being able to help a farmer determine whether or not the coming frost or the coming uh, snowfall would uh, would require them to get the plants out of the ground or whether they'd be able to weather that. Storm. Can you talk a little more about that? I thought that was fascinating.
2: Well, that was a cannabis grower in Colorado, actually. I don't know if you were tracking Colorado weather this past autumn. Every day, honestly, every day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in early September, a freak snowstorm blew through Colorado, and one of our customers has a number of our devices in a cannabis, outdoor cannabis plantation, And they were really concerned about, okay, we we have to make a call right now. Um, We need to know if, you know, they kind of knew what the weather was going to be, how far the temperature was going to go down, how long it was going to snow for. And then, you know, it was going to be 48 hours of snow. And then it was going to be back to, you know, September Colorado weather. So they they had to make a choice as to whether to pull their crop out early and basically, you know, take it out before it was mature, but save as much as they could or leave it in the ground, perhaps suffer some damage, but let the plants um, grow to maturity. And they decided to leave them in the ground and monitor the soil temperature very carefully and also the the plant growth. And, you know, they they told us about this, you know, basically minute by minute, they were watching the temperature. And as soon as it got to a certain level, they'd hit Uh, They'd hit the plants with a little bit of irrigation. They managed to save most of their crop uh, as a result, and they got it in that way. And and that really speaks to what we're trying to do is we're trying to give people data-based reasons to make decisions as opposed to looking in the sky, reading the newspaper and saying, wow, it's going to get cold. I wonder if my plants are going to be okay. Uh, And making their decisions based on kind of gut feel that they can see what's actually happening. And make their decisions on that basis.
0: Based on what you're seeing, right, based on, based on the experiences that you've had, how do you see the, the reactions on the part of, of farmers, basically? I mean, I, I would imagine that at least in in, in some countries in, in some areas, uh, there might be a, a little bit of pushback against that. I mean, I'm I'm not from a from an agricultural uh, region of myself. I'm a city slicker for sure. Um, but 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 at least from from my vantage point, there there seems to be a certain mythology associated with with agriculture, and um, it, it seems that while there would be some farmers that would welcome. Uh, technological innovation that one would think that at least in in some quarters there might be a little bit of reluctance to to turn back on the true untried is this something that you've encountered in any way of
2: course yes you know anytime technology is introduced to a, a new industry or area or a certain type of technology introduced you're going to get pushback and the one thing you need to understand about me is i'm not a farmer I'm a salesman (laughs) Um, and and always have been. And we we founded the company because, you know, we wanted to start a business, uh, but we also wanted to help people. And what we're doing right now is we're looking for growers who understand that technology can help them and they want this type of information. And they've, over the last few years, have discovered it's really expensive to get from other means. And we're making it a much more, I guess, accessible to them. So we're looking for certain types of growers who say, yeah, if I had this data, it would be very valuable to me. And those are the types of growers we're working with. You know, if somebody says, well, I don't think technology is going to help me that much. Well, then you don't sell to that guy. Right. Um, and and we we get some of that. But, you know, in the industries, the cannabis industry is a big one. A lot of people going into cannabis are, you know, ex-IT guys or X. Ex- uh, business people and they understand the value of data in giving themselves an edge, and they find it attractive. And those are the people that we're that we're working with initially. As time goes on, hopefully, people will realize that having this type of information, having this type th- these capabilities, will can be can help any grower. And that's how people adopt technology. You bring up a good point, right? That
0: yes, this is a reality. Uh, I, I like the way you put it. Rather than try to convince, perhaps those who are more skeptical, right? You go for the ones that are that are already looking at at the technology and saying, you know, this this can help me. I want to take a step back and and look at some big picture issues. And I'd like to talk about agricultural security, food security. Based on your perspective uh, and and your experience, what's your outlook on on the future of Uh, food security in Asia and perhaps more broadly around the world, are you fundamentally optimistic or pessimistic about the world's ability to to increase its uh, agricultural production
2: and ensure food security? I am optimistic. I I think that it's not just technology that's going to save people, if you want to use that terminology. It's... You know, it's human ingenuity and it's the desire to raise your kids with the right type of foods. I I think food security in general, the safety of food, you know, there have been a lot of instances over the years. I remember when I first came to Asia, there there were huge problems with manufacturers of food who were putting chemicals into the food that weren't good for people. Those companies get shaken out pretty quickly. And yes, there's some collateral damage, but it typically they they don't survive in the marketplace. The people who do survive are the people who generally do things right and are applying technology or other means to expand their ability to grow their crops. I think the biggest challenge we have for food security is probably global warming because I think what's going to happen in the future, and this is something I'm not necessarily so optimistic about is that the places where we grow things are going to change. We grow corn in the midwest in the United States. what's going to happen when the the planet heats up three or four degrees? Are we going to have to move all that production north to a cooler climate? Or is the type of corn that we grow going to change? And all that, our decisions, it's going to have to be made you know, as a government community and as an industry. So I think that's where we have some challenges. But in terms of solving the problem, I think mankind is, has got the knowledge and certainly the motivation to, to make that happen. David, it's been great
1: to have you with us as the uh, embedded systems guy morphed into a marketing role and and uh, through your, your various ventures I think my favorite uh, my favorite story from you today is hearing about your work in Vietnam where a cell tower gets installed and then uh, you're, everyone throws a party I mean it it, it makes perfect sense but it, it's such a uh, you know we've been steeped in technology in the west for so long that that we forget that uh, that was only 20 years ago.
2: Interestingly enough, one of our first customers is this pepper grower in Vietnam and you know we bring our devices out to these guys and um we put them in the ground and it's the same kind of feeling to some extent where the the employees at the at the plantation I've gotten to know them personally and they they're like, "Oh, I'm the guy that's bringing them more information about what they're doing and making their jobs easier." So it's I'm I'm feeling that a little bit now and it's uh it's given me a great feeling of deja vu well that's great well we always like to close our interviews with um
1: recommendations from you and fred and i'll provide ours ours as well so do you have anything that you've read recently or listened to or watched that you think would be uh, beneficial for our our audience to check out
2: i read a lot um lately i've been reading a lot of nonfiction. um mostly political related for obvious reasons. But I I think when you ask me for a recommendation, I go back to the old favorites. And um, one of my favorite writers is another Midwestern guy who decided to live his life overseas. His name is Bill Bryson. Um, He's from Nebraska. And he wrote a number of really great travel books. But then he started getting interested in, in science or he continued to be interested in science and started writing about it. He wrote a book called The Short History of Nearly Everything that I, I, I try to read every 10 years or so. And I just cracked it open again recently. And it's just a wonderful book because he talks about how much we've learned as scientists, but also how much we don't know and how much there is still yet to discover. And he does it with humor and intelligence and insight. I love the book. It sounds fascinating. I have heard of that before, but
1: haven't haven't looked into it, so that's a great recommendation. Thank you. Fred, what do you have for us? Well, today I'd like to recommend another podcast called "The Southern
0: Tour Podcast," and those uh, of our listeners who who have some knowledge of, of Chinese history, especially Chinese history, will be familiar with the Southern Tour that was undertaken by Deng Xiaoping. In the early 90s. And basically, uh, this was a, a reaction on, on Deng's part to the internal debate going on within the Communist Party regarding the future of, of reform and opening, especially in the years following uh, Tiananmen Square. So, the, the the idea behind the Southern Tour was for Deng to give a, a boost to, to reform efforts. And the podcast basically retells the story of the tour, but it also, it goes a little bit beyond that. It looks more broadly at the history of the main stops that Deng made during the the tour. Um, It's it's pretty well done. It's um, hosted by Jonathan Chatwin. And at, at the moment, I believe there are only four episodes at this point. One of them focuses on Beijing, the other one on Wuhan, Another one on Shenzhen, and then the the fourth one on Dongguan. I'm assuming there's going to be at least one for Guangzhou and Zhuhai at some point. But at the moment, only four of them. Uh, so good time to to catch up uh, and not let it pile up. Although it's it's very bingeable for sure. So again, the Southern Tour podcast, and it's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and uh, I'm sure other other platforms
1: as well. Uh, what about you, Jonathan? Mine is a less serious recommendation, although it, it is quite serious in retrospect. Um, so I'm recommending the uh, Cobra Kai show on Netflix. It, <laughs> it fits. It fits all of my nostalgia from 1985, whenever I saw it for the first time. Um, all of that, but also all of my my now coming into middle age struggles with uh, you know with body aches, with uh, personality quirks, uh, kids stuff. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things, and so these characters that we and I grew up with um, seeing them fight in high school. Um, now they're they're older and they're real people and they have issues. And so the the show does a really great job of, of plumbing into their backstories. And I think, uh, you know, in the wake of, of the very uh, tempestuous political season we've just had, I think it's very valuable it, it, as a social critique and saying, hey, maybe the people you think you know, you don't know as well as you do. And maybe you don't know yourself as well as you think you do. And so I really appreciate that ongoing critique of thinking, uh, you're trying giving me pause to reevaluate my own biases uh, about people and about situations. Right. And so, and, and, certainly it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's a lot of irreverent humor. The, the karate stuff is a lot of fun and uh, it's uh, season three just came out this month. So if you have a Netflix subscription, I highly recommend you, you check that out.
2: My daughter
1: is a huge fan of that show. Yeah, for, for the teenagers and, and, and the middle-agers as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been funny because we, we watched the other Karate Kid episodes previously and um, she started watching it and I was amazed that she's really gotten into it.
1: Well, David, we want to thank you again for joining us today. We appreciate you getting up on your early Singapore morning and uh, we're looking forward to perhaps connecting with you again in the future and seeing how Ornavera is doing and uh, catching up on uh, all things Asia.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been great talking to you.
1: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.